Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today we'll be talking about the best movies of the decade. Uh, if you follow the, the site, you'll have seen that over the, the past week we posted a ton of best of the decade content. Uh, I posted my top 25 list. We posted about the best performances, the best TV shows, um, the best trailers. Uh, Vinny Mancuso risked his life to rank every superhero film. <laughs> yes. Um, so there was a lot of good stuff. I highly recommend checking out our best of the decade content, but we want, we wanted to do on this episode, is not just talk about the best films of the decade, but also the trends of the decade, um, and sort of how movies and movie making changed over the past 10 years. And I think the, the main thing the, the, for looking over the, the past decade, the two big changes that I think can be seen are the rebirth and redeath of 3D. How it came back <laughs> only to die again, as well as an even heavier emphasis on IP, which not to say that IP was not valuable at the start of the decade. It was, that's still factored in, but it is now not just valuable. It all kind of belongs to one studio, which is Disney. Um, so we kind of wanted to delve into those two things. So, so first off, let's talk a little bit about 3d, which came, which was perfectly timed as it came right at the end of 2009, where there had been films that had been toying with 3d a bit. Um, avatar was not the first 3d film by any stretch, but James Cameron made it a thing because avatar made $2.7 billion worldwide, which is surprising because avatar is not a very good movie. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Maybe that's controversial to say. I don't think Avatar is a very good film in terms of its storytelling or its characters. Um, it has. A I lot know of... it's become like cliche to be like, "Oh, Avatar has no cultural footprint," but like in my personal life, people I know, I don't know anyone who's like, "Oh yeah, I really love Avatar," though. Or like, you know, I watch Avatar once every couple of years or something, or I'll watch it when it's on TV. People are like, oh, yeah, I saw it when it was in the theater and I kind of forgot about it. It's yeah, fine. it was like Avatar became like a cultural sensation thing, like a like a movie you had to see because the 3D was so good. And because that 3D was so good and it's like you had to see it in 3D and you had to see it in IMAX. And that those are more expensive tickets. And so everyone's going to go see it in IMAX 3D. And it's just kind of like, and I, I you know, honestly... I was not even that blown away by the 3D at the time. I thought it was like, this is fine. This is, you know, it's there. It's fine. I thought I saw 3D done better less than a year later when I saw How to Train Your Dragon. I thought that 3D was done better. Like the flying scene was far more immersive and energetic because maybe I cared about those characters. <laughs> Unlike, you know, in Avatar where he ditches his, his, his pterodactyl for a bigger pterodactyl. <laughs> that happens. It's like this pterodactyl is bonded to you for life. And then he goes, gets a bigger pterodactyl. It doesn't make any sense. It makes no fucking sense. Um, but three, it's pretty, it yeah, looks pretty. It's fine. And then, but 3d became a thing and all these studios were rushed. Like, Oh, we got to do these post 3d conversions. Um, I remember clash of the Titans was one of the first and it looks fucking awful in 3d. Um, and then, so everyone was trying to get on this 3d boom, which, I never, like, it was very rare for all the 3D films. And and during, I would say about from about 2010 to about eh, 2015, 2015, maybe even 2016, 
studios were like, if a film is opening in 3D, we are going to screen the 3D version for you. That is the version you have to see. You don't have a yeah. say in the matter. Yeah, yeah. And so I saw a lot of 3D movies, and I could maybe count on one hand the amount of times I was like, that 3D is really worth it. Like, there was Gravity, there was Hubble 3D, and now I'm kind of starting to draw a blank. Was Life of Pi 3D? Maybe? I can't remember. <laughs> I, think that, I think that answers the question of was Life of Pi memorable in 3D? Can't remember. Uh, Hound Shooter Dragon I liked in 3D. Like you said, I, think, I mean, I think that's a franchise that, that benefited from it. I think animated films more so than anything. Um, something that definitely did not benefit from it was The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. Well, I think, you know, there was this thinking at the time, which I never really bought into and time has proved me right, which is that 3D was the next phase of filmmaking, that all these movies would be in 3D. And rather than seeing it like, no, it's a tool. And if you know how to use the tool correctly, it can be effective. But more often than not, it's a gimmick. And it's a, and because it's a gimmick, it will lose its appeal over time. And I think that bore itself out perfectly when the fact that Gemini Man flopped massively. You know, to see that film in high frame rate was to also see it in 3D. And no one fucking bothered. Because it wasn't like, ooh, I love 3D. People are like, no, I like, you know, I care more about, you know, stories or franchises or whatever. But it wasn't like the technology wasn't there. And I'm very curious if people are like, now I got to, but hey, James Cameron is the man and I got to see how Cameron puts it together. Well, it happened even earlier than that. It was, uh, I mean, talking about best, like the decade at a glance, you know, Avatar was the spark and it was Alice in Wonderland that really caught fire. Mm -hmm. I mean, that movie grossed over a billion dollars. And you look back at like Disney live action remakes, it was really Alice in Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland was the first. That was before Maleficent, right? Yes. Um, and then Maleficent was like, oh, that's where they're going to do it. They're going to take like villains and create like origin stories for them, which they ended up not really doing. Um, but now they're kind of circling back to that with Cruella. Uh, that's beside the point. But Alice in Wonderland was just this massive fucking success, uh, which they attributed to the 3D. Um, then you had studios jumping on that train and post-converting to 3D. So you had Clash of the Titans, which was the big infamous one, where the 3D conversion was just horrible. Uh, it was a cash grab. It was one of the first movies that I think we talked about on the podcast. Maybe or maybe it was like writing about it or something, because I remember very specifically seeing it for work, and uh, it was a, a, a bad experience. <laughs> but like, it, there was this this false notion that like, oh, you know, 3D is really good if they actually shoot in 3D, and I'm just totally blanking now on like the filmmakers who did embrace that. Like, Oh, we, we shot it in 3d so that it'll look really good. And like, like, wasn't like now you see me in 3d or something. Maybe. Yeah. Now you see me. What I think was in 3d, like the cards coming at your face. And ultimately it just ended up not mattering at all. Like they've ditched it. Even Scorsese was on the, the 3d train with Hugo and was like, you know, now I want to do all my movies in 3d. Like I want to do a drama in 3d. He was not the first filmmaker to say that. Um, and I think Spielberg did 3D on Tintin. I, yes. I think so. He did. And the 3D gave me a headache on Tintin. Yeah, it was not good. But yeah, because like the Spielberg filmmaking is not conducive to the 3D technology. But 3D sucks. And now it's gone. <laughs> and we all thought it was just the future of cinema because James Cameron told us so. Yeah. And now, and now, and now James Cameron will have to return with an Avatar movie that will undoubtedly be in 3D. Yeah. And I'm very curious if like anyone will give a shit. Like I... 
you know, I know we shouldn't bet against James Cameron at this point because, like, everyone was betting against him on Titanic and that was huge and bet against him on Avatar and that was huge. Like, I know you shouldn't bet against James Cameron. There's a lot of, ev- there's a lot of, there. I'll say this. While history says don't vote against, don't don't uh, bet against James Cameron, there's a lot happening right now that says bet against James Cameron. <laughs> there's been no interest in Avatar in the last, you know, it it, ha- it it's a franchise without staying power. Um, the 3D fad is dead. Is that so? You know, unless Avatar Two is like amazing, but again, you know, he, he maybe he made a deal with the devil. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, he did. He definitely is not. Uh, you know, he he backed away from the high frame rate thing, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. So, who knows? But I mean, that's the next. It's interesting that James Cameron like kicked off the beginning of this decade with a film released in two thousand nine, and the sequel will not happen in this decade. <laughs> like, we will have skipped a decade between Avatar one and Avatar two. Yeah, it's and the thing is, it's like it's hard to care. It's hard to be like, oh, man, if only like they're there. I'll put it this way. Like if if we go a decade without another Mad Max film, I'll be a little bummed about that because Fury Road was so good. Um, And it it won't be surprised. I mean, it was decades between Thunderdome and Fury Road. And maybe just George Miller just doesn't want to make one. But I would say that would be a loss I am feeling. I am not feeling the loss of, of an Avatar sequel. No, not at all. But, you know, the, the other thing is that franchises just became this dominant thing. And so I want to I want to read to you um, the top grossing movies worldwide of 2009. So 10 years ago. And so the number one is Avatar. And then you have Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, Ice Age, Dawn of the Dinosaurs, Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen, 2012, Up, Twilight Saga, New Moon, Sherlock Holmes, Angels and Demons, and The Hangover. Now, what's interesting is the only movie on this list to gross over a billion dollars worldwide is Avatar. Whereas now, in order to be like a hit, you have to gross over a billion worldwide. And I think that speaks to how much international has become part of the business. Mm -hmm. Um, To the point that Batman v Superman grosses like 800-something million and it's not considered a hit. Which is the thing that, like, in writing about Batman v Superman, which is one of the biggest stories of the the decade, I think, um, and kind of what happened with DC there, uh, like, the Batman v Superman fans were like, what are you talking about? It's not a hit. It made 800-something million dollars worldwide. You're insane. Uh, But for the investment put in that kind of movie and for the IP, the two most recognizable comic book characters in history, it should have grossed over a billion. Yeah. It should have been a slam dunk over a billion. And I think what prevented it from crossing a billion is that the word of mouth was so toxic that people were like, no, thanks. Yeah. I don't wait. What happened? Wait, they're bonded because, because their moms have the same name. Well, I think more than that, it was just the tone of like, oh, this movie's not very fun. Yeah, it's not a fun just, film. It's not a joyous film. And, you know, by the time that comes around in 2016, uh, my voice cracking, 2016, uh, by the time that comes around, Marvel has already kind of changed the game. Yeah. You know, it's it's no longer like I think if you had released Batman v Superman closer to like 2012, when like the Nolan films were still rolling out, um, you, you know, that kind of gritty thing people may have been more they may have been more attuned to it but really it was avengers and marvel and like saying no you can have humor and you can have fun but still have dramatic stakes and i think 
Batman, you know, the whole Snyder thing was saying, okay, well, if Marvel's going to be light, we have to be dark. We have to opera. You know, it it was a sensible decision that backfired horribly. Yeah. But get, getting back to, uh, well, no, we are talking IP. Um, but but just to talk about this list of of the top ten films of two thousand nine, there are still adaptations across the board with you know Twilight Saga, New Moon, Sherlock Holmes, Angels and Demons. But there's room for like a twenty twelve. Twenty twelve is just a disaster film. That's it. That's all. It is. It's not. It's just a stupid Roland Emmerich movie that made seven hundred and sixty nine million worldwide. <laughs> um, no one talks about it anymore. They don't really need to. It's just. But that kind of film could get could get made and be a hit. And that would be what you had. Um, And now if we jump forward to 2018, um, you now it's all, it's mostly superheroes and it's mostly franchises. Um, You have infinity and, and also the top five films gross over a billion dollars. Aquaman, Incredibles 2, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, Black Panther, and Avengers Infinity War all grossed over a billion. Infinity War grossed over two billion. Um, what's interesting here is that three of the five belong to one studio, which is Disney. Yes. And, and I, it gets more dire when you look at the top lifetime domestic grosses of all time, uh, which are The Force Awakens, Disney, Endgame, Disney, Avatar, Disney, now Disney, uh, Black Panther, Disney, Infinity War, Disney, Titanic, Disney. Jurassic World, not Disney. The Avengers, Disney. Last Jedi, Disney. Incredibles 2, Disney. Yeah, I keep thinking about that line from Cloud from Cloud Atlas in the um, in the book. All entertainment is just referred to as Dis- movies are called Disney's. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense because like, there is no other entertainment. They're just Dis- go see a Disney, and like that's it. And like there's no other room for anyone else to make a blockbuster film, um, and that's a bit of a bummer or you have to just very much follow Disney's lead. So a film like Aquaman was like, make it bright and colorful and make it a superhero film. And that's Aquaman. And I, I still don't understand people like ah, Aquaman was so crazy. Aquaman was a very safe, very conventional film. Talk about Roland Emmerich. I feel it feels kind of like a Roland Emmerich film, just kind of like faceless CGI and big set pieces. And it's fine. Yeah. I don't know. I just, Again, yeah, Aquaman for there are people that love it. They're like, ah, it's so crazy. And I'm like, it's not. It's really not. There are crazier films. Um, There there were crazier superhero movies released in 2018. Um, But that's the thing. Like, people just like, I mean, that's sort of the dominant um, genre right now. And it'll be interesting to sort of see what happens and how it changes. because I feel like, you know, and I like some of these movies. I like the Marvel films. I like, um, you know, I, I like, you know, just because a film is a blockbuster doesn't mean it's a, it's a bad film. I'm, that's not what I'm saying at all, or what I think what you're saying. Um, it's just you'd like to see more diversity in that sort of top ten. Well, and it also just feels like that's the story of the decade. As mm-hmm. things continue to change, I mean, those top ten that I ran down, only two of those movies are not from the 2010s. And you go outside the 2010, uh, if you go outside the top ten and move it to the top 20, um, you only add four more that are not from the 2010s. So you know, as and it's just you know, it's escalation. 
So studios see a movie uh, like The Avengers making so much money and it has so many actors in it, and it costs so much money. Um, so they start to invest more money in the hopes of making even more money. Uh, so, you know, gone are the days where you'd put together like a lethal weapon and that would be like a solid box office hit. Uh, now it's like, well, we could spend like three, four hundred million dollars on a movie and like the profit margin is going to be pretty huge on it. But if we do cross that threshold, we stand to make a lot of money and we create ancillary revenue, which I think is the other story of it is, you know, they're not just making uh, these big movies like The Avengers to make money off the box office. They're making it for the merchandise. They're making it for, uh, you know, stuff at the theme parks. Um, It's all ancillary revenue. It just increases the awareness of that brand. So you therefore make more money off of those other things, whereas I don't think anyone is buying like, you know, a Joe Pesci action figure from Lethal Weapon 3. Yeah, although, man, <laughs> although I would get, one. I would totally buy it. <laughs> How am I doing? <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's really changed a lot um, because yeah, because of all those unnecessarily re- revenue streams. Um, so, and I, and it is just kind of the way it's going to be heading. You know, I mean, these are, you know, we're no longer in the age where it's like you're a movie studio. And you just make movies. No, you're a movie studio and you make the movie, which is leads to the TV show, which leads to the to the home entertainment market, which is drying up in its own way. And then that so that revenue streams drying up. So you got to, you know, buff up, uh, you know, overseas sales. So you don't want to piss off China. And that means your movie can't have ghosts. And then and that's not me exaggerating. You're like, there's a reason Ghostbusters did not open in China. It's because you can't have ghosts. It's a (laughs) weird fucking thing. Um, but censorship. So you have to be aware of Chinese censorship because that movie, you know, that market is so valuable to the studios, but then there's also like the merchandise that has to be sold. And it's just, it's, it's a lot and it's, it's not go. It's, it, you're not, you can't unring that bell. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know. It's been an interesting decade and it's been a decade that we've written about extensively and that like, you know, the bulk of our professional careers has happened in this decade. So we are also benefiting from the kind of explosion of all of this uh, interest surrounding these massive properties. Right. Um, One other thing I want to talk about is not just these massive properties, but then the rise of streaming. I think that's another story of this decade. Yeah. Um, Because that wasn't happening at the start. I mean, there was, you know, it had started a little bit with sort of direct to VOD, but once, you know, Netflix and Amazon and Hulu started being like, we want to get into the original film game, that sort of changed the, the, the process as well. I think, you know, and I have mixed feelings about it because I'm someone who's very much a big believer in the theatrical experience. But I also believe that the major theater chains, your Regals, your AMCs, your Cineplex, have blown it in massively. They've completely... It was always the way that, you know, these theater chains were like, we're in the junk... We sell junk food and happen to show movies. Because that's where they make most of their money, is selling concessions. But by not valuing that theatrical experience, they let someone else come along and be like, well, your release windows are shorter. The release windows have dwindled to like three months. And a lot of people are like, well, why do I want to go to a theater and have a shitty experience and pay a lot of money for that shitty experience when I could wait three months and stream it? Or I can see an original movie right fucking now by just staying home and popping on Netflix. And I don't think theater chains have figured out how to respond to that. And I think it's really going to hurt them. 
I would say I would counter that to say the bulk of my theater going experiences are perfectly fine. Okay. I do. I don't. I. It's rare that I have a garbage theatrical experience going out, uh, and I usually frequent uh, Cinemark um, or I, it's mostly Cinemark. Um, I go to Regal every now and then, and that's a bit of a lesser experience. But uh, Cinemark, I mean, the screen projection is great. Uh, the the theater that I go to has the big cushy recliners, and audiences by and large are pretty respectful. Yeah, uh, audiences are not respectful. In <laughs> <laughs> I, I also my my feelings are pretty. Um, I will say this: my uh, I had a very sour experience earlier this year when I saw Avengers Endgame, and we thought there was a shooting. Yes. They, because the good people at the AMC Phipps Plaza thought, "Hey, what's a good time to pop these balloons?" Yeah, in the middle of a screening, which so, is also an added like stressor. You know, uh, anticipating these massive movies, you can't really think about it these days without thinking, like, "Huh, am I going to die today?" Yeah, I'm very like aware of where Avengers the exits are whenever I go to a movie these days. Yeah, it's it, and it's also, I mean, the expense is the main. Uh, deterrent for me i mean right now i mean i'm lucky enough if you listen to this podcast you know that matt and i go to tiff and sundance i'm lucky enough to see a bunch of movies there uh my fiance is not she wants to see a bunch of movies like jojo rabbit and parasite um and all of these great movies that are out right now but to see every single one of those movies in the theatrical window in which they're released is a lot of money like it gets very expensive um so it's just like you know it's it's cost prohibitive to see everything that you want to see in a theater so you you pick and choose. I mean, we went and saw Knives Out this weekend and had a great time. The audience was fantastic, and I was really happy about it. But you know, I wish I could see more. Yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah, it is. There's like a high cost, and like that's what the thing where it's, I under there are films like I'll champion, but I also can sympathize with people. Where it's like I don't really want to spend my money on an, something I don't know. Like so, it's easy for me to be like, The Art of Self Defense is a great film. It's kind of dark and twisted. Uh, it's about toxic, toxic masculinity. Um, you know, it's, it's, it may not be for everyone, but you should definitely give it a go. And someone's like, do I want to pay $15 to see <laughs> the art of self-defense and maybe I hate it or I can pay money to see a Marvel film, which is, you know, palatable, <laughs> you know, it's just, I, I may not, may not be my favorite film of all time, but I'll enjoy myself and I just want to go enjoy myself. So I get where people are coming from. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it's interesting to sort of watch how the, the business has changed. I don't want to be a doom and gloom person that says theaters are dying. I don't want to be that guy. Um, but I would also say it would be foolish not to see that there will be more upheaval, especially if, as we talked about in a previous episode, uh, if studios are able to buy their own theaters, I think that could have a seismic change in the entire business Mm -hmm. Um, that so, you know, there, there's still, and and I mean, even if, if you keep, if you maintain the status quo, that is still a very, that that is, that is a a dangerous prop, not dangerous, but it's a proposition that is very uh, tenuous with the streamers versus the student, the major studios. And what does that all mean for where, where do people go to, to watch movies? So, we're, we're in a time of transition, you know, and things are happening very fast. Uh, and what I, my hope is that there's always room to tell 
something other than franchises. Because I like franchise movies, but it would sort of like be like someone telling me the only food that is available is fast food. And I'm like, I like fast food. Like, it's good. It, it, you know, it fills you up and it's fine. But I don't want that as my breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I don't want that as ever, the only thing I can have. And I think that, I think we're all lessened if that's, if the only thing that's out there are franchises. So my hope is that the small, there's always room for the smaller films that can be more personal and more challenging and, and things like that. And yet it feels like the it's it's becoming a, a kind of a separation. I mean, you look at the highest grossing movies of the year, there are these massive Avengers Endgame level films and Frozen 2. You look at the, the Oscar race, the kind of the best movies of the year. I mean, two of the top contenders are Marriage Story and The Irishman. Those are Netflix movies. Uh, and then you also have like Dolomite Is My Name is fantastic. Um, so, you know, it's rough. There are outliers like once upon a time in hollywood was a a really great box office success but you know that's quentin tarantino brad pitt and leonardo dicaprio it took some work to get people out to theaters to see that movie and i'm glad they did and i i do think in some ways that uh you know this year has been a bit of a rebuke to the idea that the movie star is dead um given that kind of thing but uh yeah i don't know it's interesting it does feel like there's a bit of a separation going on and you know if joker is our middle ground god help us Oh god, yeah. That's that's my fear. <laughs> yep. To me like Joker is the worst of all options and it's not it's not about Joker good or Joker bad. The problem is Joker is pretends it being a serious film. It's a serious film for people who don't want to see a real challenging film. They still want things in the comforting confines of something they already understand, which is in this case a a Batman movie. It's about a Batman supervillain. Like you couldn't make Joker if it was just some fucking guy. You can't make Taxi Driver today. And Todd Phillips knew that. That's why he made Joker. Not because he has some deep love of like the character or Batman. He just wanted to make fucking Taxi Driver. Couldn't do it. Called it Joker, and that and then said called it a day. So, which is a pretty <laughs> cynical reason to make anything. If you're like, yeah. I can't make this thing, so I'll just call it Joker. And you know, people who don't normally go see serious movies will see this one because it's serious, but not too serious. I guess I don't know. It, <laughs> it's it's oh gosh, man! Now I'm just now I'm sad. That's <laughs> that now it's doom and gloom. You yeah. brought up Joker. <laughs> um. So yeah, I don't really have anything. I mean, those are sort of the major trends. I think of of the 2010s. I mean, obviously. You know, there are other things happening in terms of like, you know, you know, who there were big things that happened. I mean, Sony got hacked. Uh, yeah. the, the head of Warner Brothers couldn't, you know, stop being horny in text. So he lost his job. Um, you know, there are things that happened, but I would say the major trends were Disney those. bought Fox. <laughs> Disney bought Fox. That's a pretty, pretty big thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, in any event, uh, let's, uh, you want to talk about some of your favorite films of the decade? The films that you sort of like, I hope people see the, if, if there are any films from the past 10 years, people should see these. Oh God, I guess so. <laughs> Mine's more framed as, as my favorite films of the decade. The That's films fine. that kind of touched me the most and, and the movies that kind of stuck with me the most. I don't necessarily know if they'll hit anyone else the same way, but them's the breaks. Okay, well, why don't, why don't you lead off? What's what's a film that was one of your faves? Uh, so do you want to go like back and forth with our top tens? Because you posted your top ten. I have a top ten. Yeah, let's go back and forth. Let's go back and forth. All right. And I, I took a, a note from you and cheated. 
on this list. You should. Because you were, you were a cheater, cheater, pumpkin eater. Um, my number 10 uh, is a tie. Two films that are kind of similar and, and hit me in somewhat similar ways, um, but are also very different. And it's La La Land and A Star is Born. Um, they're both musicals. Uh, they're both movies that a lot of people just hated. And I just love the heck out of them. Um, I find La La Land to be just really sweet and um, it's charming as hell. And then just really sad, but also kind of truthful to, um, you know, the romantic experience. And A Star is Born, I just felt was just a really impeccably crafted film. I I don't have much, uh, you know, personal connection to it other than it was just a really astounding piece of filmmaking. Uh, and I thought the songs are really fantastic, and uh, it just just really hit me hard. Um, and it may be recency bias because this was last year, uh, and I'm still mad that it only won one Oscar. But um, I think time will out that uh, Bradley Cooper, get, Cooper gave a really ter- terrific performance in that one. Uh, <laughs> I'm still kind of mad at Warner Brothers for blowing it so badly on A Star Is Born. The fact that they think- just got plain beat by Bohemian Rhapsody of all things. Yeah. I think they, I don't know what happened. I mean, I know you know said they, that like Cooper didn't really want to campaign for it. He just wanted the movie to speak for itself. Yeah. But, and I think they got a little high and mighty about like, oh, you know, we're, we're hot shit. So we don't have to do too much in order to sway voters. And that's not the way it works, especially now. So you got to put in the work and Cooper came out and started doing stuff. But I think it was too little too late because Malik was on it. Rami Malik wanted that Oscar real hard. So. Yes, exactly. What's your number 10? My number 10 is the Lego movie. And I'm sure you're like, that's too fucking chill. That's too high for a movie based on a toy. Um, it's, it's, it's crazy how good the Lego movie is and how much it, it like, it's so much better than you would assume like something based off a toy should be. But that's like Phil and that's like Lord and Miller's thing. Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. They take movies that shouldn't work at all and they just spin them into gold. And what the Lego movie does that's so clever is it takes that chosen one kind of narrative and then finds a way to be like, no, what you do, you can be the special one, but it's what you do that makes you special, not some prophecy. Um, and by removing it from the realm of prophecy and it's like, no, it's what you create and what you choose to be that fits in line with the creativity of Lego, which is very smart. And beyond all that, the movie's gorgeously animated and it's so fucking funny. I mean, I laughed so hard every time, uh, princess Unikitty is pretending to be a businesswoman and just goes numbers, 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 business numbers. Is this working? And one of the robots goes, yes. And she goes, yay. (laughs) (laughs) it's just so silly i mean there's a scene where there's like a car chase scene where like like a pig explodes and turns into bacon it's just it's just great attention to detail it makes me so happy and uh i just i very much love the lego the lego movie it's uh that movie is a delight i i enjoy that movie quite a bit um although i will say i think lego batman and lego movie 2 both kind of soured me a bit on it like i haven't been i haven't revisited since seeing those movies and i think warner brothers really boned it by just kind of saturating the market with those lego movies they really did i mean again i think you know well no one from warner brothers listens to this podcast so i'm gonna fucking (laughs) say it there are people at warner brothers who i really like and i think warner brothers has made some of the best movies of this decade i really do i think they've made some 
like a Star is Born and like the Lego movie and like other another film on the like they've made really good films. But I also think they've been horribly run. I think the fact of that, like if, if we want to talk about stories of the decade, one of the stories has to be that Warner Brothers has if they have succeeded, it has been in spite of themselves because a lot of the times they've made really bad films. And I don't want to lay all the blame at Kevin Sujahara's feet, but I'm going to lay most of it. And it's sort of bizarre that the the board of Warner Brothers did not look at the failures that had come across this guy's desk and were like, the thing that was the tipping point was horny texts to an actress. <laughs> because if the, like, what should have been the final nail in the coffin is Justice League. Justice League should have been fucking huge for Warner Brothers. That was their team-up movie. And they bungled it in every conceivable way. Every way. Justice League. Like, and I don't even think Justice... I think Justice League is not as... I think it's a better film than Batman v Superman, but it doesn't matter because no one fucking cared. And so when you look at the failure of the superhero properties, when you look at how... You know, Fantastic Beast hasn't really taken off like it should. And no. when you look at, you know, what we're talking about right here with, you know, doing, they bumped out way too many Lego films way too fast. And, and by the time Lego Movie 2 rolled around, like it, I don't want, I mean, it wasn't a, a total bomb, but it flopped. Like, yeah, by, nobody cared. Nobody cared because they overdid it. And it, and that was regardless of the quality of the film. And so, you know, I just think Warner Brothers, is a studio with some great IP. I, I, you know, the people that I, the publicists that I work with Warner brother, who I, I think they're really nice people. It's the higher ups who do not have their shit together. And I don't know what, what the future holds for Warner brothers. It looks like they're kind of writing the ship on their superhero properties, but mm -hmm. we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a major bummer to see them, uh, fumble all that stuff. Just as you said. So, Yeah. Hopefully it gets better. Hopefully. All right. What's your number nine? Uh, so number nine is, uh, it's going to make people so mad, but, and, and I'm not a huge star Wars guy, but I loved the last Jedi. Um, it just, and, and I put it on my list because it's a movie that is emblematic of me to me, um, of how you should approach, um, some of these franchise films and franchise filmmaking um, and kind of with uh, and it, you could probably sub, um, you know, a Marvel movie like Black Panther or Thor Ragnarok or even Avengers Endgame into this slot right here. Um, maybe Spider-Man Homecoming. But the idea being that, like, you know, taking something and honoring the core of it, but also challenging the audience and challenging the fans in interesting ways to tell a more interesting story. Um, and that's, that's where I feel like the last Jedi succeeds. I think that it's, uh, it's just a blast of a movie. The Canto bite stuff is not the best stuff in the movie, but it at least makes thematic sense. It's not as if Ryan Johnson was like, well, I don't have anything else for these characters to do. So what if they go to a casino? Um, it's all in service of Finn's character arc and it's all in service of, of changing him. Um, regardless of how kind of the cast might feel, I do think this movie was very important for those characters and I'm interested to see uh where those characters end up in um rise of skywalker which i'm sure we'll talk about extensively but um i don't know i just think this is a really exciting interesting franchise film yeah i think when all is said and done uh last jedi will be one of the most important films of this decade because it's such a pivotal film and such a 
massive franchise because with Last Jedi, you kind of had the choice to be sort of, do you go in the direction of fan service or do you challenge your audience? And Ryan Johnson chose to challenge his audience and make something that wasn't going to please everyone. And I think J.J. Abrams, and that's not to, to, to trash Force Awakens. I think Force Awakens is a, is a very hard film to make. And um, you could not make Force Awakens the way you make Last Jedi. Exactly. For, you could not do that. iteration cannot be that challenging. No, the For- Force Awakens, especially coming after the prequels, had to be... And especially with the pressure that Disney, like buying this new Star Wars franchise and needing it to take off, he made a safe film that needed to be safe. Like it, it had to be that movie. And that's not to trash Force Awakens. But for the follow-up, I think a lot of people with, with Last Jedi, they're like, they want that comfort, comforting thing that they know. And Last Jedi didn't give it to them. And, and Ryan Johnson consciously didn't give it to them. He questioned, you know, what is, what is Star, what, if this is a war, what does that war look like in a way we haven't seen before? Furthermore, what are, how do I challenge all of these characters? If these are the characters that I have, how do I challenge them? And furthermore, how do I decide which characters aren't really necessary to my story? <laughs> like Poe Dameron. Well, I mean, I think he at least finds something to do with Poe that actually has a really cool thing to say about um, toxic masculinity, to be honest. He does, but to Poe, like he uses Poe as uh, to further the theme, yeah, which uses, is fine to me. Yeah. Because I don't think Poe's that much of a character to begin with, but for quote unquote fans of Poe, they were very mad that he was just used as kind of a pawn. I got bad news. Poe is an archetype. He was supposed to die in Force Awakens. <laughs> yeah. And it's great that Oscar Isaac is super charming, but. You know, Poe does not have the depth of of Finn or Ray or Kylo Ren, and yeah. I think he, I think Ryan Johnson really moved everyone forward in a really interesting way. He found he, you know, and he says this in the the director and the Jedi documentary, which is that he wanted to find the thing that would challenge each character the most, and I think he did that. Yeah, I agree, and that's why it's on my list. So my number nine is Ava DuVernay's Thirteenth, which is a documentary she made on Netflix about mass incarceration. And I think it's just, on the one hand, I think it's great that Netflix exists for these kind of documentaries. Because I don't think anyone's going to be like, I would like to go one for 13th, please. One for a two-hour documentary about mass incarceration. People aren't going to go out. But if you say it's like, oh, it's on Netflix and you can watch it at home, I think it makes it more palatable. And I think that's good because I think this is a very important story to tell, especially in this decade when ideas about mass incarceration are being finally being challenged and the black, the rise of the black lives matter movement. And I think DuVernay captures that and captures this conflict without ever being pedantic about it or talking down to her audience. It's a very well-made film and it's such a great follow-up to Selma to show that, Oh, not only can she masterfully direct uh, a feature, she can also masterfully direct a documentary. And it just, it makes her one of the most exciting directors working today. Yeah, that movie is, I mean, it's rough to watch, but I, I think it's also important. And and I agree. I think it was really neat of her to make that film after she made Selma. Yeah. So, so I, I again, if you, if, if you have Netflix, watch 13th. It's, it's really good. Is it a hard watch? Yes. But it's also, I would also say it's an interesting watch. It's one that will engage you intellectually rather than sort of just relentlessly bum you out. Yeah, for sure. Um, my number eight is another tie. It's the two best comedies of the decade. It's pop star and MacGruber. Mm. I mean, they're just so good. Uh, they make me laugh silly. 
I think MacGruber is just consistently insane, and I love it for it. I think Popstar is just really well-crafted. Like, it, it looks and feels cinematic, um, and the songs in Popstar are, are incredible as well. Um, but these two movies just make me laugh my head off. And, uh, you know, in a decade where the comedy genre went through some pretty serious shifts and and kind of floundered quite a bit towards the end of it, Um these two movies have been my go-tos to go back to time and time again for a really good laugh. Yeah. Those both made my top 25 list. Um, they're so funny. They're so quotable and they're both so good at what they do respectively. Yeah. Um, they're just, they're films that I have no problem revisiting cause they make me laugh so fucking hard. So good. Um, my, my number eight is, is a cheat. It is the mission impossible franchise because, if you look at Mission Impossible 3, which came out in 06, um, it's fine. It, I've always said it feels like a long episode of Alias. Um, it's fine. It's not It's not Mission Impossible 2 level bad. Um, but it's interesting. When you start with the Mission Impossible franchise with Ghost, uh, Ghost Protocol, that is a film that is so tenuous that that film is sort of being like, if it doesn't work, we can hand it off to Jeremy Renner. <laughs> Like, that's what we'll do. Like, that was the plan. The plan was to be like, it's kind of not Tom Cruise's anymore because I don't know if this is going to be a thing. And then they figured out, no, no, we just have to risk Tom Cruise's life every time we make one of these. And that will draw people into the theater. And it works. But also, like, the surrounding film is very good. They're very good spy action movies. And no one else is making action movies like this. And they know that their ace in the hole is Cruise and the crazy stunts they concoct around him, but the stunts are just so much fun and so good. And yet the rest of the movie is entertaining. It's not like what I find really admirable about the mission impossible franchise is it's not like, Oh, I'll just watch the stunt and then check out. I'm with it the whole way. And that to me is what makes these films so good. Uh, that is my number seven. Okay. So. All right. Well, great, great lead in <laughs> the mission impossible franchise. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. It's the best franchise running right now. Better than, you know, consistency wise and quality wise, uh, you know, pound for pound better than Marvel, you know, better than star Wars. Uh, it's my absolute favorite. I think Chris McCory has been a really exciting injection of talent into the franchise. And I'm very curious to see what he does with seven and eight. Because what you know made it special this whole time was that a new director would come in each time and kind of change up their style, which McCory did between Rogue Nation and Fallout. Fallout feels like it's from a different filmmaker, um, and Fallout to me is the pinnacle of the franchise. I think that that uh, is probably like the best version of a Mission Impossible movie we've gotten so far, uh, and I really really loved it. Uh, I think Rebecca Ferguson has been a, a really great addition, and it feels like it's a franchise that is. Looking at Marvel, looking at, you know, all of these other uh, interconnected universes and franchises, Marvel, um, and then, uh, you know, the failures like the DC ones and like Transformers, um, and is is making really smart decisions in, in just kind of, you know, embracing the team that it has, embracing the history of the franchise that it has, which has a leg up on a lot of these other franchises around doing that, Um and then building a really exciting and interesting way forward. Um, and Fallout kind of flirted with getting a bit deeper into Ethan's character, and I'm curious to see if that holds for the next two. But, God, I love these movies so much. Yeah, they, uh, they're they so much fun, and I'm, I'm very excited for 7 and 8. Yes. Yeah, I can't wait. 
so my number seven is Get Out, uh, Jordan Peele's uh, feature debut. And as I said in my article, I'm just I'm so angry that Jordan Peele can also like not just be like a hilarious right like that he's not just funny like and created like one of the best sketch shows with Key and Peele. He's also really good at horror and created you know basically the social thriller. And it's not like and obviously he would tell you you know horror films have had social commentary for a while, but he really sort of put his stamp on it, especially for where we are right now with race in America. Um, Get Out could not have been more perfectly timed. Um, and I think having his voice and what he brings to the table really makes Get Out so electrifying. And it's a film that like deals with really heavy, weighty, you know, social issues, but it also has a sense of humor. I think Lil Ray Howard is kind of the, the unsung hero of that movie, uh, with sort of his sort of being an audience surrogate (laughs) of being like, I told you, I told you, (laughs) like, it's so good, but like the film, but that comedy does never undermines the seriousness of the stakes. And it's just, it's such a tricky balancing act, uh, but he pulls it off beautifully. Well, and the cuts to Lil Rel, I think, are really necessary for the audience to kind of breathe because yes. it is so tense every single time you're at that house. Um, it's just a, it's one of the best debuts. I mean, that year, I think I'll never forget that year with the debuts of Jordan Peele and Greta Gerwig. I think it was just a really special one-two punch of two emerging talents who just right off the bat, like they have a really confident voice. Um, really have something they want to say and know how to say it well. Uh, and it just, just really, really astounding. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so uh, what's your number six? At the risk of making this a Tom Cruise love fest, my number six is Edge of Tomorrow, Ooh. which is my favorite uh, action movie of the decade, which I know is sacrilege against Mad Max Fury Road. I also love Mad Max Fury Road. But Edge of Tomorrow, as someone who uh, really loves sci-fi uh, and like uh, very much like science-based sci-fi, I find Edge of Tomorrow just a really smart and really fun uh, time travel movie. And obviously the key is in taking this character that Tom Cruise plays and turning him from a coward into a hero. He begins the movie as uh, kind of a despicable, cowardly figure and through this repetition is built into someone who you're rooting for. Um which I, I think is an interesting direction for Tom Cruise. If he's not going to do stuff like Magnolia anymore, um, I you know I at least like that he's trying different stuff within an action movie like this, as opposed to doing something like Oblivion, which is just kind of boring. Um, but yeah, Edge of Tomorrow, I just have an absolute blast with. Uh, I don't know if we need a sequel. I would certainly watch it, but Cruise and Emily Blunt uh, are just dynamite together, and uh, I really love where that movie goes. Yeah, I, um, it's definitely, it's funny, you know, with all the video game adaptations and I would say it's kind of funny. We've, we've had a whole decade of more video game adaptations and none of them are that good. I'm sorry, detective Pikachu fans. It's still not that good of a film. Um, (laughs) it's not, it's not, um, the best video game movie was edge of tomorrow (laughs) because it, it puts you in that thing of like, try, try again. Like it, it, it is a video games mentality driving that film. Yeah. Yeah, it's. Uh, I remember it was Assassin's Creed and something else, and we were like, "Oh, are we finally going to get the first?" It was like game? Angry Birds, I think, was that year, and something else. There was something else pretty high profile. Maybe it was Tomb Raider. I think was that Tomb the same Raider year was, as No, it wasn't. It was a couple no. years after. Although I did like Tomb Raider. Yeah. 
but yeah, no, we didn't get a good video game movie. Oh, Warcraft. It was Warcraft. Which I Which at I, least think is interesting. I think Warcraft I, is an I interesting well. film. Yeah, I do as well. Yeah. All right. Uh, my number six is Moonlight, um, which is, uh, again, when you're talking, talking about these sort of rising talents of the 2010s, Barry Jenkins is, is obviously on there. And I think what makes Moonlight so remarkable is that it is just such a deeply... Uh, in a, in an age, in the age where like I feel like these superhero films are dominating and franchises are dominating, it's just like I Barry Jenkins is like I just want to tell a story about this one um, gay black boy and how he goes from a boy to a teenager to a man and these three phases of his life and what follows him and what haunts him and how he is affected and it's just it's a really beautiful stirring character piece that really just it it, it blows me away and. Everything about it. I mean, the cinematography is gorgeous. The score uh, is is amazing. I just it, everything about this film works, and I was just I was it to me. These are the kind of films I love to see. This is like the the power of cinema to help you empathize, like with people that aren't you. Like I am not a a gay black kid who grew up in a bad neighborhood, but Moonlight invites us to sort of look at this life and look at these choices and to sort of reflect on them. It's, it's really powerful. Yeah. It's a, it's a really stunning piece of work. And, uh, um, I mean, we think that, you know, the coming of age genre is so worn out and then here comes Barry Jenkins with a, uh, completely unique way of doing it. Uh, and I think the performances in that movie are astounding. I think one of the things that really struck me when I first saw it was how it feels like the same character played by three different uh, actors, which is really tough to pull off. And I think that's a testament to not just the actors, but to Barry Jenkins' direction. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, to have these three actors sort of share that, that sort of character space is really, really Im- impressive. Yeah. Um, so uh, what is your number five? My number five is kind of a coming of age movie, um, but it's my favorite Wes Anderson movie, I think. And it's Moonrise Kingdom, um, which I really fell in love for. I mean, I'm a sucker for um, uh, kind of cute uh, love stories told uh, in unique ways. And I I feel like that movie is just it's a lot of fun, um, but it's also really sweet and somber when it kind of juxtaposes this young love between these two kids with their parents. Um, and what the parents are going through and how the parents are approaching their marriages. Uh, it's also, as with all of Wes's movies, you know, just expertly crafted. I think Grand Budapest's best is Hotel is probably objectively his best film, um, but Moonrise Kingdom is, is still my favorite, I think. Yeah, I mean, Wes Anderson had a, had a pretty good decade. I mean, but I think he kind of evolved a bit. I mean, I think he took his stuff to the next level between Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest. Isle of Dogs is fine. Um, but he, he sort of evolved past the bad dads thing. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, for my number five, I went with, uh, Spike Jones's her, which is just so wonderfully realized is like both like a science fiction film and a love story. Um, it's, it's kind of funny this year. It's like Joaquin Phoenix gives such an amazing performance in Joker. And I'm like, that's a lot of acting in Joker. I think he's way better in her. Yeah. Um, where he has to act off a voice 
and make you fully invest in that relationship. And I just, I love the attention to detail of this world, but also the story that Spike Jones is telling about these sort of artificial relationships we create because we're afraid of the real ones that can hurt us. And I think that sort of, that running line throughout the film about how, you know, love is both beautiful and also very tough makes it a deeply romantic film um, that still has a kind of a life and pulse of its own. It's kind of the film, it's like, where the log line sounds kind of silly, like, oh, a guy falls in love with his computer, but there's a lot more to it than that. And I think the fact that you kind of forget the log line of it and really embrace what it's going for uh, makes it such a magnificent film. Uh, her is my number three. Ah. And I think it's, I think it's one of the more underrated films of the decade. Mm-hmm. Not that people aren't aware of it, but like you said, it just like, I think Joaquin Phoenix gives one of the best performances of his career in that movie. And it's just so deeply felt as a film. Uh, everything coming together, the score, the cinematography by Hote Ben Hotema, um, and then obviously Spike Jones's direction and his screenplay. And it, you know, it was a hard won battle. Uh, you know, he cast Samantha Morton as uh, the AI, and she was on set with Joaquin during all of shooting. Um, she was separated from him, from him, but she was on set. And in post production, he changed directions and recast the role with Scarlett Johansson, which was tough to do. But I think Scarlett also gives a really tremendous performance in that movie. Um, it's one of the best films about humanity that I've ever seen, which is ironic given that it's about a guy falling in love with an AI. But as you said, I think it's about these artificial relationships we create um, because the real ones have the potential to hurt us so deeply and so so roughly. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, – that movie breaks my heart. It's so sad, but it's really, really great. And if you haven't see it, uh, seen it, it's on Netflix right now, and I would highly suggest you check it out. Yeah, same. And – I am a little annoyed that Spike Jones has not made another film since. I know he's pretty slow going nowadays. I don't know what's been going on. I mean, he'll but... make the occasional music video or commercial or something, but yeah. Yeah. Come on, Spike. <laughs> what are you doing, Spike? Give us more great things. Yeah. Make more great stuff. What's your, uh, what's your number four? Uh, my number four is another tie. I don't really know if it entirely comes together, but it's my list. So fuck you. Um, it's a tie between uh, Mining the Gap, which is a documentary about um, kind of growing up and about these uh, these boys, um, you know, kind of chronicling them growing up with a history of uh, violence, domestic violence in their lives and kind of how that is passed on and how that carries on and how that manifests in different ways. Um, in us, but also more largely about kind of uh, our relationship to our parents and kind of what our parents give us and what our parents force on us and how we react to that. Um, it's a really, I think, important and really heartbreaking documentary. It's on Hulu right now. Um, uh, it's a movie that I could not shake. Uh, it made me cry pretty hard and, and just made me really upset. Um, but I think that's because it 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 captures something so real and so human that uh, we don't speak about too often. Um, and then, uh, you know, tied with that, I have Boyhood, which is not necessarily about that, but it's also a film about growing up. Um, and as someone who, you know, grew up in, you know, around the Texas, Oklahoma area, uh, this film really struck me as very familiar. A lot of the things, you know, this movie was shot in Texas. Um, 
a lot of the things that the character was going through, a lot of the things that I went through, a lot of the music he was listening to was a lot of music that I was listening to. Um, and I just think it's a really stunning cinematic achievement that Richard Linklater pulled off. He's one of my favorite filmmakers and that he did it and did it so well, I think is just insane. And that he lost best director to fucking Birdman <laughs> is still ridiculous. <laughs> it's so annoying. I mean, the guy made a movie over 12 years and, you know, stitched it together into this incredible, uh, epic and intimate piece. Uh, and we give it the movie about everything, uh, whatever. But yeah, that's, uh, that's my number four is that, that cheating tie. I, I respect your tie. <laughs> <laughs> um, my number four is the documentary exit through the gift shop. Um, so Exit the Gift Shop is starts has a really interesting trajectory where it starts out being a guy a guy named Terry Guetta who's just this enthusiastic guy who films everything and he gets starts filming the world of street art and this eventually leads him to the famous street artist just Banksy and eventually Guetta cobbles together a documentary that is unwatchable <laughs> and Banksy's like why don't you give me the footage and I'll see what I can do with it and what Banksy does is he turns the camera back on Guetta who then decides. Guetta decides he too can make art and it's just, it's such, it's a really entertaining film, but it's really a fascinating look at who gets to make art, who consumes art and what does that, what value does that art have? And it's just to sort of get to the nature of art through this kind of looking glass approach of turning the camera on the documentarian is really fascinating. Um, And, I, I just think what Banksy did there was a really smart way to tell this story about his own profession um, and his own work and the work, you know, the world that he's in, especially street art, which is in a public space. You know, it's, it, it, it goes against the normal rules where you, you make a painting and you put it in a gallery and someone buys it, you know, who does street art belong to? And if, you know, someone chisels out a part of a wall and then sells it to a bunch of rich assholes, who don't appreciate it, what value does that art have? It's just a really fascinating film that, you know, I saw it back in 2010 when it was released and it's just, it's never really left me and I, I really admire it. That's a film I saw in 2010 and I've not seen since. So I do not remember too much. Of it. it holds up very well. I just rewatched it last year with my wife and uh, she really enjoyed it too. So I, I, I watched it pretty closely to when I saw Dear Zachary for the first time. So ooh, that, yeah, you shouldn't watch anything close to Dear Zachary for the first so time. So that kind of drowned out? Yeah, like, yeah. It, maybe maybe give Exit Through the Gift Shop another shot. Yeah, All right. but I remember liking it. So. Well, your number three is her. Yes. So my number three, and I'm sure people are like, this is way too high, and I don't fucking care. I love 21 Jump Street. <laughs> I, I love it so much. I, I'm amazed at how much I enjoy this movie because uh, I don't have any attachment to the show that it's based on. But again, Lord and Miller taking an idea that shouldn't work at all and then just being like, no, it's brilliant. And it's a really funny like coming of age film that's in the mold of like a buddy cop film where these two guys who were who didn't get along in high school then become friends. But then their friendship is kind of turned on its head when the one who was the nerd is now the cool guy. And the one who was the cool guy is now the nerd. And they're still trying to solve this case. And it's just packed with so many good jokes at the expense of the genre while never losing sight of these two guys and how much, uh, you know, they, they kind of care about each other. And it's just, it's a really fun 
funny film with a lot of great touches that stuff that I really enjoy that I think kind of gets overlooked. Like when, when Janko has to like kill a guy in self-defense, like he vomits afterwards. And I always appreciate the like, (laughs) Oh, killing people isn't an easy thing to do, (laughs) but like, it's, I I don't know. I appreciate that kind of stuff. And uh, I just thought 21 jump street was, was magnificent. Um, I, I just, I think it's filled with so many great little jokes uh, along the way that uh, it just has a whole special place in my heart. Yeah, I love that movie as well. It's been far too long since Lord Miller have made a live action movie that was actually theirs. Um, so, well, that brings I, me to I number two their... on my list. Solo. <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> Imagine thinking Solo was a great <laughs> film. Even the people who made Solo are like, this is not a great film. Yeah. Uh, what's your? What is your number two? Uh, my number two is Inside Lewin Davis. Mm. Um, it just just sad movies all the way at the top. Boy, I know, right? <laughs> Inside Lewin Davis. Uh, but these are the movies that like really stuck with me, and I couldn't stop shaking them. And you know, if we're talking performances of the decade, I still think Oscar Isaac gives one of the best performances of the whole decade in this movie because it's it's a character who is fully realized, and that is tough to pull off. Um, and I mean, like, fully, fully realized. It just feels like you know Lewin Davis inside and out. And, you know, the trick of, like, he's a dick, but he's someone you care about throughout, throughout the whole film, I think, is a testament to him and, and the Coen brothers. Um, the music in this film, I, I think, is also really terrific. Adam Driver, obviously, is fantastic in it. But um, just kind of what it has to say about artistry. And, it, again, it's just so sad. <laughs> how you know sometimes great artists will never get recognized and they will live their lives miserable and you know die forgotten and that's just the way it goes uh it's a very coen brothers joke yeah great Um, great art does not always find a way yeah yeah you know just because you've struggled doesn't mean you will get there and, and reach greatness and you know it's it's not it's not a fun life lesson but it is you know something that happens and i and to me it's kind of a you know um, I don't know if gentle reminder, but you know, it's, it's, it's almost kind of nice to know that, you know, like, yeah, there will be great artists who will never be seen. Um, and that's just kind of the way it goes, but it doesn't detract from their greatness. It doesn't detract from the fact that they were great, um, just because they weren't, weren't recognized in their time or weren't recognized by, you know, anyone meaningful in their lives. Um, but I don't know. I just, uh, I, I just really, really adore this film. And I think it's, it's just really, really well-crafted um, and and fascinating and heartbreaking and in all the right ways. I agree. I was, it also made my top 25. Um, yeah. For me, my number two film is Mad Max Fury Road, um, which is just, it just doesn't feel like a film that should exist. Like it just like, how did, how did he get away with an R rated post-apocalyptic film that is also very hopeful and it's this colorful, this well edited. Oh, he made it while he was like 70, you know, just outshining everyone else. Um, and it's just, it's so electric, but it, it's a film that has some really big ideas on its mind about gender and power. And it feels more about the world that we live in and as disturbing as that may be. But I feel like it just, it does it with such electricity and excitement and i mean it is a film that is literally and figuratively explosive it it just it comes at you and i i love kind of just how much 
of a blast it can be while still having so much substance. And it's just, it's, it's amazing. Again, I'm kind of amazed that this film is, is even real. Yeah. It's insane how good it is and how well-crafted it is. And, you know, it, it, it's no surprise that George Miller was coveted for a bunch of other franchises after the fact, but I think he, he's wrapped or is going to shoot um, his next movie. I think it's wrapped. Um, but God, like that's cinema. That's, yeah. It's so, and it just, it's, it's also just kind of a reminder that like, there's so many things that you like about buzz and hype that you kind of got to shut out of your head. Like yeah. you were like, Oh, Mad Max is going to be a fucking disaster. They had to move their entire production because the first location got rained out, you know, uh, got flooded. And then, you know, that's what the, from the director of happy feet, give me a fucking break. You know, he doesn't have it anymore. And like, they're and all the, the actors hate each other. The actors hate each other. And which they did and still kind of do. And yet it's great art. Yeah. It's great art. Like there are all these sort of intangibles that people like want to, you know, talk about before a film opens so that they can predict a quality of film. And sometimes Mad Max Fury Road is a good reminder. Just watch the fucking film and then chime in. Just yeah. watch the movie. That's all you have to do. It takes two hours. Yeah. So I think we have the same number one, but I'm going to, I'm going to, what, what is yours? Uh, is Solo a Star Wars story? Same. No. <laughs> <laughs> What's your number one? It's the social network. It's the social network for me too. Yeah. It's got <laughs> It's got to be. How else could it be anything else? It is, it is a it is a decade defining film that still speaks about what we're going through. Yeah, it's a perfect movie. I was obsessed with it when it came out. Uh, admittedly biased as a massive fan of Aaron Sorkin and a massive fan of David Fincher. Um, and you know, I, I had been tracking the project pretty early. I was even part of like this. Like Aaron Sorkin made this Facebook page, like a fan Facebook page, to answer questions as he was like trying to figure out what the fuck Facebook was when he was hired to write this movie. Uh, so he would answer like fan questions about the West Wing and stuff. Um, and you know, I loved the movie when it came out. I was obsessed with it, but it just it it has such staying power. It's so and and on so many different levels. Like a, just on a pure entertainment level, this movie is extremely rewatchable, very funny, very watchable, uh very entertaining, uh very dramatic. It still hits pretty hard at the end. So even if you ignore like everything outside of it, just as a film, as a contained uh piece of fiction, if you want to call it that, with these characters, it's very satisfying and very fun to watch over and over again. Obviously that Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross score is fantastic. And, uh, the performances, uh, from Jesse Eisenberg and Andrew Garfield are incredible. Um, then you add in everything else and you see that, you know, if, if the social network has any faults, it's that it, it went a little easy on Mark, Mark Zuckerberg. Um, Which, by the way, was not the opinion at the time. In, oh, everyone. 2010 was like, oh, OK, this is this is pretty hard on Mark Zuckerberg. And then time poured out. No, it was too nice to him. Yeah. People were like, you're being mean to Mark Zuckerberg. You got to knock it off. Um, so that was a thing that happened. Yeah. But. I don't know. I just think it's a perfect movie. Uh, it's it's one of my, you know, I felt pretty confident a few years after to put it in, you know, what I consider my favorite films of all time. And it's it's still up there. And uh, God, it's just so good. I mean, it's it's the kind of movie that it, when it's on cable, you watch it. But it's it it is also like Oscar caliber. 
you know, some there are some cable movies that are like, hey, this isn't like the best movie ever made, but sure as hell is a lot of fun to watch. This just, you know, kind of combine those combines those two, and you know, I think its greatest strength is, or or kind of its secret weapon is you have Aaron Sorkin and David Fincher, uh, two immense talents, two very different people, um, bring elevating the best in each other and uh, kind of hindering their worst tendencies, where Fincher maybe tends to get a little too dark. Aaron Sorkin tends to get a little bit too romantic or sweet or sappy. Um, it just levels everything out to, to this just kind of, it's a masterpiece, I think. And we could have had another one if they had, if Sony had been smart enough to just let them work together on, on, on Steve jobs. Yes. Yes. That would have been great. And apparently Fincher and Scott Rudin are both open to doing a social network sequel. And, you know, seems like Aaron Sorkin might be down. So who knows? Maybe we get another one. Social network double tap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I think you said it perfectly about social network. Uh, I don't really have anything to add about it. I just think it's it's really well done. Um. Uh. So yeah, those are our our top ten of the decade, and I highly encourage you to to, to give those a shot if you haven't already. See them; they're good movies. All right. Well, with that, let's move on to to recently watched. What have you seen lately? Uh, so I went to the theater this weekend and saw a Netflix movie, uh, which I had already seen, uh, which is Marriage Story. But uh, I, you know, I wanted to talk about it just because it's so fucking good, and it comes out on Netflix on Friday, December sixth, I believe. Um, so if you're not lucky enough to live in a town that's showing it on a big screen, which if you are, I would really encourage you to go and see this one in the theater. You may think like, oh, it doesn't have explosions, or it's not this really big thing. You know, maybe I can see it elsewhere, but. Um, this and the Irishman, I would highly, highly suggest seeing in a theater if you can. Not to say it's going to be ruined if you watch it at home, but if you have that opportunity, I would seize it. Um, but I mean, it's Noah Baumbach's best film by far for me. It's career best performances from Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. We talked about it a little bit after we saw it at TIFF, but uh, you know, uh, just singling it out here, it's it's one of the best movies of the year. It's one of the most heartbreaking movies of the year. I mean, you will you will probably almost certainly cry uh it's very rough but in a really human way um it never feels contrived uh, and and if you for those who don't know it, it chronicles the process of divorce from you know it begins with the couple separating and it ends with their divorce you know spoiler alert they do actually get divorced that's just how it goes um but uh you know i, I think it it's just fascinating in the way it's presenting these two sides, Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver's sides of, of this marriage and, and how they viewed their relationship together um, and how those views were similar and different and how they kind of begin to lose their voices as their lawyers get involved and everything. Um, and there's a child involved, which makes it uh, all the more rough. So, yeah, you should see Marriage Story, but brace yourself. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely think it's one of the the best films of the year, but it is it's not a it's not a breezy watch. I'll put it that way. I mean, it is like it's funny. It definitely has funny parts. Yeah, it's not like a it's not a grind, but it's also like it will emotionally hit you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, for my recently watched uh, this past weekend, I watched Hustlers, uh, which I thought was terrific. Uh, I am very late to this party. Everyone has been raving about it since September. Um, but it's really freaking good. And the thing that I would like to say about it is that like when it, I, I heard sort of be like, Oh, it's like lady Goodfellas. And I think that's kind of dis- disservice to both hustlers and Goodfellas because like, just because a film is crime 
uh, voiceovers and needle drops, that doesn't make it Goodfellas. And I think what Hustlers is doing that makes it unique is it's really skillful at exploring the intersection of capitalism and gender. And yet the way uh, Lorenz Scafaria directs it, it never feels preachy or that it's overbearing on the audience. It's always very stylish and very fun. And there's a lot of empathy for the relationships uh, between these women uh, while still keeping it an upbeat sort of crime film. Uh, And I was just really, I was surprised how quickly the film hooked me and how much it just had me throughout. I was very much on board with Hustlers. Uh, Yeah, that movie is a ton of fun, but also really... um substantial yeah it's really and, smart it's very much about something yeah um so yeah i'd highly recommend hustlers uh especially since it will be on dvd blu-ray and 4k next week so check that out um okay well if you want to keep up with this podcast you should follow us on twitter adam where can we find you on twitter at adam chitwood and you can find me at matt goldberg thanks for listening everyone we'll be back with you next week